0: In Episode 8 and 9, we covered the cold case of Teresa Allure, a 19-year-old young woman who completely vanished from her college campus in 1978. She had only attended eight weeks at Champlain College, a school located in a small borough of Lennoxville, Quebec, about two hours east of Montreal. Forty years after finding Teresa Lohr's body, the family is still searching for answers. We recently got in touch with John Allure, Teresa's younger brother, to see if any progress has been made on the case, and to hear about the emotional and mental toll this has taken on them as a family. Join me now. As we take a look back into the disappearance and murder of Teresa Lohr, what actions law enforcement has taken to move this case forward, and a particular suspect that John has become more convinced was involved in the death of his sister.
1: In the fall of 1978, my sister enrolled at a small college called Champlain College in the eastern townships of Quebec. Now, she'd been there approximately eight weeks from September through November. On the Friday, November 3rd, 1978, was the last day she was seen alive. She disappeared she was missing for five and a half months and in the spring of 1979 on friday the 13th her body was found in a body of water less than a mile from the residence she was living at in compton quebec
0: Teresa was found, face down, wearing only her bra and underwear, a short distance from where she was boarding. Her scarf was later located in a nearby farmer's field, and her wallet was discovered a week later, 10 kilometers from where her body was found. An autopsy was unable to determine the exact cause of death however many years later john was notified about another coroner's report that had been conducted the morning teresa's body was found stating there was evidence of strangulation
1: with the initial investigation there were all kinds of theories most of the theories were theories where the, the victim was blamed So, suggesting she was a drug addict or a a runaway, had somehow fallen in with a cult, gone back to Calgary to visit a boyfriend. What they came initially to conclude was that she died of a drug overdose. And so they quickly were working on a theory that somehow students had had a party, she had overdosed on some acid that was going around campus. And that students had panicked and they dumped her body in that bog less than a mile from the campus.
0: Initially, Teresa's parents and their family trusted law enforcement and believed the explanation they had provided surrounding Teresa's disappearance. But as the years passed by, John and his brother became increasingly dissatisfied and decided to take matters into their own hands. As they started digging into the case, they quickly realized that two other murders in a relatively short period of time had occurred in the same area. This was highly unusual for an area with such a small population and where murder was virtually unheard of. The two other murders included a young woman by the name of Louise Cameron and a young girl named Manon Dubay. Including Teresa, this was a total of three murders that had occurred within a 19-month period and all within 10 to 20 miles of each other.
1: What my parents didn't know... But any police officer would have known was, number one, there had been two other cases, the Cameron case and the Dubé case, and that there had been a wave of sexual assaults on campus all through the winter of 1978 uh, into the spring and leading up to, in fact, that the week that she disappeared sexual assaults and sexual aggressions on the college campus also in 1977 there was just a wave of unsolved homicides in the montreal region and then bleeding off the island of montreal towards sherbrooke one body found let's just say the midway point between sherbrooke and montreal so everyone would have known there were all these cases of young women Of a similar age, found under similar circumstances, strangulation. I don't understand how they didn't investigate it as a murder, having known all this, unless there's some piece of information that we don't know.
0: When we asked John if he had any more leads on who could have killed his sister, he stated,
1: Luke Gregoire, who was convicted of a Calgary murder in 1993. People know that is a suspect in my crosshairs. And so periodically they'll come to me with information about Luke. And Luke died in prison, so he's, he's deceased now.
0: Luke Gregoire was incarcerated for a string of brutal assaults stretching all the way back from Calgary to eastern Canada, along with a rape and murder charge. After learning about Luke's method of capturing, raping, and murdering women, John wondered if this could be the same person who murdered his sister. After all, he had been in the area at the time of Teresa's death. John describes the other two murders that happened around the same time as Teresa's and why he believes they are connected.
1: With the man on Dubay case... So that's the case of a 10-year-old girl who, within the 19 months that Teresa was also murdered, she had disappeared the year prior to Teresa, and two months later, she was found face down in a stream south of Sherbrooke, Quebec, fully clothed. The prevailing theory at the time was that this was the one where they felt that she was a hit-and-run victim. To which Kim Rosmo said, when you hit you run you don't hit pick up the body put the body in the trunk drive 10 miles south dispose of the body but nevertheless because of the circumstances because she was 10 because there was no obvious signs of sexual assault because she was fully clothed and because there was no definitive cause of death They speculated that a mark on her forehead might have been caused by the bumper of a car hitting her. But there was nothing definitive that many people refused to see the link with Teresa. And I always felt there was a link because for for a couple of reasons. Number one, despite all these murders we talk about, many of them took place in Montreal. The probability of homicide in the Sherbrooke area in 1978 Seventy-nine was very low. And so a cluster of three homicides within 19 months was very rare. That's what led to Kim Rosmo's conclusion that they were probably connected. Certainly Louise Camara, 23, obviously raped and strangled. It suddenly occurred to me that I had never attempted to get the medical-legal autopsy reports on Dubey because I just took it for granted that there was nothing going to be in there because of what I was told. So I made a request for her documents. And the initial coroner's report says just as clear as day there that although the cause of death is undetermined, that the coroner initially concluded that she was the possible victim of a sexual aggression. Now, why he wrote that down, I don't know she was fully clothed. Nevertheless, that was the coroner's initial conclusion.
0: Although Manon Dubey was a 10-year-old girl and hadn't appeared to have been sexually assaulted or strangled, Dr. Kim Rosmo, the geographic profiler John had connected with, said the proximity of the murders suggested that they were connected. Dr. Kim Rosmo, Is a Canadian criminologist specializing in geographic profiling. In 1995, he became the first police officer in Canada to receive a doctorate in criminology. His dissertation research resulted in a new investigative research methodology called geographic profiling. In 1998, his analysis of missing cases of sex trade workers determined that a serial killer was at work. Serial killer Robert Pickton was arrested in 2002. And although he was only convicted of six counts of second-degree murder, he had confessed to murdering 49 women to an undercover agent. Well,
2: there's a lot of hype and mystery that surrounds profiling generally. The, the better-known psychological profiling or behavioral profiling can be defined as making inferences about the offender's characteristics from the characteristics of the crime itself. And in that way, geographic profiling is is similar. We take a look at the locations of the crimes, and by the crimes, I'm talking about a connected series of crimes, uh, like with the locations of murders in a serial murder case, or of rapes in a serial rape case, or robberies. So we believe the crimes are all committed by the same person. We look at the locations of the crimes and their surrounding geography. Then we try to make inferences about where the offender most likely lives or what his activity space is like. So we're treating geography as a clue, and then we're using that to help us focus on where the offender might be. Its primary function is not to solve a crime. Uh, Profiling cannot do that. All you can do to solve a crime is get a confession, a witness,
0: Dr. Kim Rosmo became involved in Teresa Allure's case after Patricia Pearson, a crime reporter and friend of John Allure, contacted him. When
2: she showed me the information, I looked at locations. If I remember correctly, the different cases involved both encounter sites or where the places where the, the victim was last known to be in and where their bodies were dumped. they all kind of intermingled. And this was in an area that did not have a lot of Deadly violence against one. There weren't a lot of strange murders. You know, there certainly were a lot of reasons to consider these to be serial murder cases. And definitely the police should have investigated them as serial murder cases. There was no effort to connect or even consider the possibility that these deaths were linked. Yeah, It was, it was a very uh, frustrating case because of lost opportunity.
0: We wanted to know. What factors can link crimes together in determining whether or not a serial killer is active in a particular area?
2: There's a number of ways that it's possible to link crimes together. The, the most powerful is, of course, physical evidence. You have, you know, DNA recovered from one crime scene and Mexico out of another, or fingerprint. So that establishes a linkage with, you know, a degree of, of very high certainty. Then you've got witnesses. So... You know, maybe a rape victim described the offender a certain way, and that matches how another victim described it. But there's, you know, under the stress of an attack and the possibility that lighting conditions are poor, that not all witnesses and victims may be sober, there's there's a lot of error associated with that. I remember one rape series in Manhattan where one victim described the offender as black, another described him. Another described them as Italian or Mediterranean. The other described them as Middle Eastern. It was all the same person, established with certainty through DNA. And if you have a murder case, you don't have a, a victim that you can talk to, and you may not have any witnesses. So that doesn't become possible. The final category is behavioral linkage of crimes. So is there similarity in the behavior that allows you to link them together? And the two most powerful predictors are time and space. In other words, how close the crimes are together, geographically, and how close they are in time. So those are the most powerful. Then you've got modus operandi and, and signature in, in other aspects that may suggest, you know, victimology that, that may suggest the crimes can be late. But we're now dealing with probabilities, not certainty.
0: We asked Peter Vronsky, an investigative historian who studies and has written about serial killers, if it's possible for a serial killer's M.O. to change.
3: Serial killing is kind of a learning process. The reason that they're killing serially is that they're constantly trying to improve on how they realize their fantasy. Serial killers usually have some kind of fantasy that often can begin as early as the age of five, in their pre-puberty era often that fantasies most commonly are triggered by some kind of trauma, some kind of abuse, some kind of rejection by either family or their peers. Young children who suffer that, some of them develop these fantasies of revenge, of violence against those who they feel are targeting them, whether it's for physical abuse or just they're being bullied or they're being taunted or ignored rejected and so forth so they develop these fantasies of control and revenge and they carry these fantasies through puberty and in puberty sometimes these fantasies are then sexualized what then happens typically these budding serial killers will start taking these kind of fantasies of control and revenge on the road they try to somehow realize and test some aspect of realizing their fantasies. And so often you'll find in serial killer histories, early juvenile records of voyeurism, exposure, exhibitionism, fetish burglaries where they may burglarize a house and take female undergarments, which they may have a fetish for. Sometimes they may just stand over a sleeping woman without actually touching or awakening her. And that gives them satisfaction of a sense of control. They already are are in control of the victim here because the victim is asleep, but they're awake. Eventually they will keep pushing it forward. What happens is eventually they get bored with that. It's still not a realization of their fantasy. So they take it further. It could be a rape without a homicide. Then it could cross into murder. Once they kill their first victim, they go through this kind of process often of realizing that the first time they killed somebody, it wasn't at all like their fantasy. If only the victim had screamed. If only the victim was scared. It's always something that dissatisfies and disrupts the realization of the fantasy. And so they start again to try to improve on it. That begins the kind of serial addiction. That's essentially what serial killing is, it's an addiction. It's an addiction to perfectly realize a fantasy which, of course, is impossible.
0: John told us that over the years he receives messages from people every few weeks claiming to know what happened to his sister. As you can imagine... This type of information has at times taken John down a frustrating and sometimes bottomless rabbit hole.
1: It's emotionally toxic and potentially very, very dangerous to go down those rabbit holes. Somebody came forward and said Teresa was killed at the hands of a satanic cult involving one of the lead investigators at the time and rather graphically described how she was killed and claimed to have witnessed it as a boy. So I obviously sent it to the police. Let the police respond to it, is my feeling at this point.
0: Since Teresa's death in 1978, her case has been handed off to six different detectives. Having so many different handlers, as John refers to them as, over such a long period of time has made it difficult to gain any kind of real traction As Teresa's case is handed over to each new detective, there's a level of relationship building that needs to be established once again between the family members and the detective. Getting both parties up to speed on new information, leads, and progress in general also takes a tremendous amount of time. Also take into account that John, the primary spokesperson and advocate for the Allure family, lives in another country altogether. We wanted John to tell us what kind of toll investigating his sister's murder has had on him mentally and emotionally, especially since it has gone on for so long.
1: Is it traumatizing? Of course it is. I was reading a book on victimology and in there it talked about PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder and sort of gave a catalog of all of the symptoms I had like 23 of them easily I think I'd be doing this work myself and everyone a disservice if I wasn't honest about you know the fragility of my mental health at times You know, there's times I need to step away with it. I mean, thank God I have three daughters. I have a family. That's what keeps me anchored. Dealing with the day-to-day of my children becomes more and more important and meaningful to me. That's how I deal with that, is to be strongly engaged with them. It's no secret that part of the reason for the separation and divorce ultimately of my former partner and I was the result of this work. With the initial investigation in 2001 and then subsequently the increased victim's advocacy that I was doing. I was becoming increasingly obsessive with this work. And it was affecting the quality of my relationships with my children and, of course, with with Elizabeth.
0: Hey guys, have you noticed your hairline receding? Has your barber given you the news that you're balding up top? Did you know that 66% of men lose their hair by age 35? I know my friends and I have been watching out for bald spots since our early 30s. I want to tell you about 4 a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. Hymns connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. No awkward trips to your doctor. Go to 4 and answer a few questions a doctor will review your answers and prescribe you products that will be shipped directly to you. Order now, and our listeners will get a trial month of hymns for just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. See website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. Go to 4hims.com slash tmom. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash T-M-O-M for hymns dot com slash T-M-O-M. Have you fallen into a rut and wear the same things every day? I pretty much live in jeans and t-shirts. The problem is, when the temperature rises, suddenly you've got to change your whole fashion strategy. But you can make getting dressed for summer easy and fun with Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix can style you for every season. I signed up a couple weeks ago and it was a breeze. I inputted my sizes and the colors I like to wear. Once you've done all that, one of their stylists will review your profile and ship you clothes, shoes, and accessories picked just for you. And you don't even have to leave the house. The Stitch Fix box contains five items and you only have to keep what you want and you can return the rest. And best of all, there's no subscription required. You choose when you want to get your fix. Get your first fix now at stitchfix.com slash madness and get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash madness and get started with Stitch Fix today stitchfix.com slash madness. We asked clinical psychologist Dr. Julie Kinn what some of the symptoms are for post-traumatic stress disorder and how those symptoms may affect a person's day-to-day life.
4: As always, I'm not here to diagnose anyone I'm here today to help expand our knowledge of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. We tend to talk about PTSD and PTS interchangeably. The big difference there is the D, the disorder part. Part of the reason why we psychologists and others in this field are making an effort to talk about it as post-traumatic stress is because this is a common and normal human reaction to experiencing or witnessing a trauma. We want to destigmatize these symptoms so that more individuals feel comfortable seeking care and help. So what is post-traumatic stress? When we experience something terrifying, a trauma such as seeing a car accident or being in the car accident, something that could cause death or severe harm to ourselves or someone else, that's a trauma. And there's lots of different ways that we react to it. It becomes a disorder and it becomes troublesome when that avoidance and these fear reactions start interfering with our day-to-day activity. Post-traumatic stress can prevent us from having meaningful relationships, from success at school and at work, and it can get in the way of just a normal, happy life. There's four main parts of the post-traumatic stress symptoms. The first is reliving the event or re-experiencing the symptoms. So the most common one of these is nightmares. Nightmares are the key mark symptom of post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of times people might feel like they're going through the event again, experiencing the same physical and emotional reactions, or smelling the same smells they experienced, seeing the same things. And these are unwanted. It's not at times when a person is deliberately trying to remember, but just at other intrusive times. You can imagine how difficult that would be in the middle of a workday or in the middle of a class. Another common part of reliving the event is triggers. A trigger is something that just reminds the individual of the traumatic event and then instantly it pulls up those memories, those sensations, and those same behaviors. The second portion of symptoms is all about avoidance. People who've experienced trauma tend to avoid the source of the trauma. Unfortunately, Sometimes this can really lead to disruption in our lives. For example, if an individual is in a car accident on a bridge, they might first start by avoiding that bridge, and then start avoiding all bridges, and then avoid driving on any major road. And this avoidance can expand and expand until they're really quite limited in their activities. A third area of symptoms is that post-traumatic stress can change the way you think about yourself or the way you think about the world and others. This is probably especially true in situations like the one we're talking about today, where your worldview changes dramatically when you realize that your loved ones are in danger. can result in feeling like the world is a dangerous, untrustworthy place. This would make it really hard to develop close relationships. The fourth area of symptoms is called hypervigilance. And all that means is kind of being on alert, always looking for the danger around you. People who are hypervigilant, and if you walk up to them, they have a huge startle response. People who are hypervigilant might be a little more jittery than others. They can have a hard time sleeping because, of course, they might feel vulnerable in their sleep. It can be hard to concentrate when you're thinking about danger. Even if it's not the top of your mind, it's kind of lurking behind there. They can be really startled if someone comes up to them when they're not expecting it. And they might find that they want to have their back to a wall in a restaurant or in public spaces. They don't want to be in an area where they can be attacked. Now, we most often think of post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder as associated with one particular traumatic event, like being in a car accident or seeing someone be assaulted or being assaulted yourself. But there's also evidence that just learning about traumatic events to those close to you is also traumatic and can lead to the same symptoms. A lot of recent research has focused on how community members began showing these same symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder after events like 9-11 and school shootings. In other words, just because you weren't there to witness the event And the trauma doesn't mean that you don't need to pay attention to this very common human response. There's nothing strange about experiencing distress after trauma. But we need to be able to heal as well. And if sometimes like these go on for more than a couple of months, that's when it's time to seek help. The good news is that post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic stress is easily treated. Reading about John, it's amazing that he has devoted so much time to this effort to find his sister's killer, but also expanding the search to help for other missing people. It's really truly a gift he's giving to his community, and it's very encouraging. Hearing stories like this, I'm sure, will make lots of our listeners want to get involved too. My advice to others in this kind of situation is to set limits on the amount of time you're going to focus on these efforts each day or each week. It really can truly take over your life. For those of you who are engaged in very emotional work, whether it's your job or volunteer work, what's helped you stay focused when you need to be focused, but be able to disengage when it's time?
0: We asked John how Teresa's death has impacted him as a father and if he parents his three daughters differently, knowing firsthand how vulnerable young women can be out in the world.
1: Even if somebody says they're going to be home at 8 and they're not home yet. I mean, I used to freak me out, man. But I, I try not to let my world affect their world. Despite the fact that, as I say, when you, when you have those pockets of time where it's like, Oh, oh my God, I, I thought so-and-so was at my ex-wife's and she thought she was with me. And oh my God, she's just at a friend. That's my trauma. That's my baggage. I try not to let that affect them. They don't need me to remind them of all the bad stuff that is out there.
0: We also asked John to address some of the preconceived ideas an outsider might have that has not had a loved one murdered.
1: I think there's a lot of cliches. Many of us who are part of this club, we don't choose to be part of it. But there's a lot of cliches and misunderstanding, I think, around it. And I think it's varied. Some people don't like the term victim. They want to be called survivor. Some people don't like the term closure. Some people do like it in the pursuit of justice and the idea that you often hear that in a cliche fashion, the family just wants closure. I don't particularly know what that means. For some people, what that means is the case to be solved. That's certainly a type of closure. But certainly, in the case of the murder of missing Aboriginal women, it obviously extends closure, extends far beyond a case being solved. In the case of my sister and many of the victims in Quebec, closure means much more than the capture of an offender and that offender going through a trial process. For many of us, the the injustice now has been at the hands of Quebec police forces. So where do you get closure around that? There's been several justice inquiries over the years in Quebec around this subject. I think what the police recently did, they recently, with their cold case squad for the Certe de Quebec, they added 25 detectives to it just within the last few months. For me, that's a result. I'm much happier with them spending money on that and going forward. Doing a better job of handling cold cases than get, having some kind of public forum where all of us get up to the microphone and complain about all the injustice that has been done to us. I've already done that.
0: It appears that whoever murdered Teresa didn't go to great lengths to dispose and hide her body. We wondered if John had any thoughts on how killers have become increasingly calculated in discarding evidence that may tie them. To their crimes
1: since the dawn of dna more people are going missing because bodies are being buried because nobody wants to be associated with the dna in cases in the 70s you'd find the bodies just because there wasn't that threat but nowadays people might be going to great lengths i mean we just heard in calgary today a body was found behind the drywall in a mall and the other thing is the prospect of child or human trafficking
5: If you're anything like me, I get lectured just about every single time I go to the dentist that have been brushing my teeth wrong for not long enough or that have been using the same toothbrush for too long. Well, thankfully, with Quip, I can start taking care of my pearly whites the way they deserve. Quip is the first ever subscription electric toothbrush that's been accepted by the American Dental Association. It's an electronic toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses, reminding you when to switch sides. And when you get your Quip subscription, you'll get new brush heads delivered to your door on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including shipping. You know what that means. No more lectures from the dentist, and not to mention how thankful your teeth will be. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash madness right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip Electronic Toothbrush. That's your free refill pack free at getquip.com slash madness. Spelt G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash madness.
0: We asked what advice John would give to anyone who has lost someone and is still searching. For answers
1: lean on your friends ask for help contact your local victim services unit NGO where possible if you don't have one in your region reach out to NOVA the national organization for victims assistance to seek help stay talking be social Don't isolate yourself. I know in the initial stages when these things happen, if someone disappears or you find out that your loved one is murdered, it's impossible not to think about these things. But nevertheless, you must take care of your mental health. You must exercise, go for walks. I do this with intention. You need to have that kind of discipline. Otherwise, you are going to drive yourself mad. As sure as the sun rises in the morning, you will.
0: As we mentioned in our earlier episodes on Teresa, John Allure has his own podcast called Who Killed Teresa Allure? In his podcast, he goes into great detail about the investigation on his sister's murder as well as many other young women in that region. We asked John if he had any other projects he was working on to help bring more light to his sister's case, and he has. A project he had tried to get off the ground back in 2003, which is now finally coming to fruition.
1: I had written a book proposal, and I had traveled to Toronto to meet with both Penguin and Random House, and I pitched my book proposal. Basically, what both publishers said at that time was, Well, this is very interesting. Come back to us when you solve the case. That was it. Patricia, who is a published author, was meeting last fall with their editors. And she said, oh, by the way, do you remember John Allure? He thinks he knows who killed his sister. He goes, John Allure is still pursuing this? And she said, yeah, he never gave up. And he was like, that's the book I want. He was like, I don't care if it's solved or not. What I want is the book about this guy who's never given up.
0: We continue to be inspired by John's perseverance and determination to find the person who killed his sister so many years ago. Over the years, he has not only pushed for answers in the murder of his own sister's case but countless other victims in the area. He has been an advocate and advisor to many other families trying to navigate the system, search for answers, and bring justice for their loved one. If you haven't checked out John's podcast, Who Killed Teresa Allure, we'd like to encourage you to have a listen. Also keep an eye out for his upcoming book, which will be co-written by crime reporter and author, Patricia Pearson. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Violet, Lisa M., Chandra M., Shelby, Melanie M., and Lynn C. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts Red Rum Blonde.
5: Hi,
4: this is Aaron from Red Rum Blonde. Join me each week as I look at a different crime. Some cases I cover are solved, but some remain unsolved, and some are well known like the Son of Sam and the Night Stalker, but most are lesser known, and even a few are from the Pennsylvania area, like the death of Dr. Autumn Klein and the disappearance of Debbie makel You can find the podcast on Acast, iTunes, Stitcher, and many other podcast forums. Join the Red Rum Blonde Facebook group. You can find me on Instagram, and my Twitter handle is at BlondRedRum. I hope you tune in.
0: An Impact Statement
5: In court cases that end in a conviction, victims and their families are often allowed to make an impact statement, a statement of record of what they had before the crime and what they were left with after. But for unsolved crimes, crimes that don't end in a conviction, or serious life-altering events that aren't crimes at all, There is nowhere for the victims or their families to speak. Impact Statement is a new podcast that talks to victims and their families about life before, during, and after a life-changing event. Impact Statement combines compelling narration with interview clips to give a clear retelling while allowing those who have been affected the most to speak. Impact Statement can be found in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.
0: The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funk You can find them at the record label's website by going to Golden dot com slash GE. I
2: can feel the madness. Someone standing at my door. I hope they can't get in because I'm not prepared to run. I can feel the madness. someone standing at my door. I hope they can't get in because I'm not prepared to run.